All right, friends, welcome back to our little podcast here about World War One, aka the Great War. Uh, Mr. Wilkes here signing on from outside Athens, staying quarantined, trying not to go anywhere, not get anybody sick. Hope you all are doing the same. Um, so, just to pick up where we left off, the war has started. Um, primarily due to the assassination of the Archduke by a Serbian nationalist. Um, and things are getting intense. Um, we talked about our first major battle, the Battle of the Frontiers, which gave us a pretty good idea of what the rest of the war is going to be like. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get started, um, also, again, just a quick little message out there to everybody who is bored to death and ready for this thing to be over. Stay strong, stay healthy, make sure you follow the proper guidelines, you know, wash your hands, wear your face masks and all that. Um, we're right here with you, and we're trying to get back as soon as we can. But um, we'll go ahead and get started. Okay, so to pick up for part two, um, I want to cover today... The height of the war, the mid-years uh, of the war, the, the battles that take place in, most people would argue, the worst times of the war. Um, I couldn't quite come up with a great title until it came to me. Um, the title for today's episode is The Terror in the Trenches which by the end of this episode, I'm sure you will agree, is pretty accurate. Um, if you're wondering right now what's terrible and even more what are trenches, I promise that will go away soon. I will explain all throughout the episode. But um, to start off, um, after the Battle of the Frontiers, the Eastern Fronts, remember that central to left side of Europe area, is where most of the battling is taking place. Um, we have several battles that are taking place right after the Battle of the Frontiers, most notably the Battle of the Marne, which is a very large battle, but kind of ends in a stalemate. By the way, stalemate, good vocab word. That basically means a war where both sides kind of lose. There's not a clear-cut winner. Sort of a tie. Um... So, after the Battle of the Marne, which kind of spun off of the Battle of the Frontiers, we have the uh, Battle of the Somme, S-O-M-M-E. Um, again, these specific battles just kind of add to the interest of the topic. Uh, you're not going to be expected to remember each battle, who won, who lost, all that stuff. But I just wanted to give you some of the highlight examples of this war now. When I say highlight, I'm not trying to be ironic. These are terrible things that happen. But the the most action-packed moments of the war, maybe that's a better word to describe it. Um, so the Battle of the Somme happens in 1916 for several months. Um, the Battle of the Somme is such a catastrophically large battle it's hard to put into perspective but it's also the first instance really that we're going to talk about where trench warfare really becomes the reality of the day 
So trench warfare um, is basically like digging yourself a ditch like you see on the side of the road, but digging it up and down both sides. So like picture a, a drainage canal, but about six feet deep on both sides uh, with different materials kind of reinforcing it, holding it up. There's wood, there's sheet metal, there's concrete in certain places, brick in certain places, sandbags help hold it up, um, along with just packed dirt, rocks, whatever they could find. Um, so trench warfare is this idea of both sides digging these miles and miles long trenches, basically head deep tunnels into the ground that don't go all the way underground, just covers all the way to your head. Um, and these miles and miles long trenches firing at each other, occasionally charging or retreating, occasionally moving up or back. But it's really more of a really bloody chess match between the two sides. Um, there's not a lot of movement. There's not a lot of decisive victory or defeat over, you know, a short time. That's why most of these battles last weeks or months in World War I. Because it takes so long for one side or the other to be even able to declare themselves the victors. So, um... The Battle of the Somme is our first real instance of this trench warfare. and um, It's one of the few ideas that I really don't know if I can properly express in a podcast form how crazy it would be to be in these trenches. Uh, if anybody has seen the movie 1917 that came out this year, that's a very, very accurate representation also, there's a lot of YouTube uh, videos that simulate it. If you type in Trench Warfare uh, Simulator. Or there's several video games. I've heard there's certain Battlefield video games that have World War I battles. Stuff like that. Um, but you're literally up to your head in the ground. Living like a, like a bug or some sort of burrowing animal. Um... You've got dozens, if not hundreds, of fellow troops around you. You've got ladders to climb up. And you've got this area in between the two sides. Um, this area between the two sides, between the allies and the central power lines, where, where the troops are gathering, um, becomes famously known throughout the, the war and throughout history as what's called no man's land. Um, that's probably the most famous phrase and vocab term from this time period in history, no man's land. Um, it is called that because it is literally suicidal to go out of the trenches into this middle ground without extreme luck, preparation, and skill. Um... Because in No Man's Land, you have a muddy, wet, dirty, smoky wasteland where all the plants have been blown up or cut down by machine gun fire. All the scenery and places to hide are gone. Uh, you have large craters from the cannon fire from the artillery. Uh, you have fences set up with one of the strangest inventions 
that's used in this war, which is barbed wire. Barbed wire, like, in spider webs all over this no-man's land, just strung up in these makeshift fences designed to stop and slow people down and catch you. Um, unfortunately, some people literally get caught in them like spider webs. Um, but my point is that no man's land is just a killing field. If you, if you pop up out of the trench without a well-timed, well-planned attack, you are pretty much committing suicide. You're going to either be shot by a soldier, you're going to be bombed by explosive artillery, thrown a grenade at you, uh, hit with a sniper shot, or most likely you would just be shot up with a machine gun somewhere on the other side that's pointed at your position. Um, none of these are good things. And even if you escape all of that, um, you also have to worry about two other things that are happening on these battlefields. Um, one of which is the new invention of landmines. Um, landmines are literally just a pressure sensor bomb that's buried a few inches below the ground um, and hidden and covered back up with dirt. When you step on it, it goes boom. It blows off legs, it blows people in half, it blows people completely up depending on how big of a landmine it is and how hard you step on it and where you step on it. You're at the best case scenario going to wake up unconscious with, you know, half your leg blown off. Worst case scenario, they never find you and you just are, you know, vaporized into dust. Um, so there's no good ending to stepping on a landmine. And these things are placed all over the battlefield. Every 10, 20 feet, they randomly place them by the enemy. And the scary thing is... There is no way of knowing without specific equipment where these landmines are. Um, they can be right under your feet. They could be three feet from you. They could be one foot away from you. They could be nowhere near you. You can't tell. The ground all looks the same. There's no like hidden visual way to identify these. You have to have like, uh, uh, what's it called? A metal detector basically to find them. So, you never know when those things are around. And, of course, both sides claim to put them everywhere to freak out the other side. The other big thing that's dangerous in this war, that really we only see in this war, really, is the use of toxic poison gases. Um, now, sometimes it is gases released by the shells. The shells are full of canisters of tear gas, or uh, irritant gas, stuff that makes you not be able to see, stuff that makes you cough or, you know, throw up. You know, those are the mild ones. But uh, some of these shells are filled with deadly gas that kills you and literally um, melts your organs from the inside when you breathe them in. Things like mustard gas. Um, and you never know when this is going to be released on the battlefield. And it didn't happen all that often. Uh, gas is not a very effective weapon but it is a really scary weapon and it freaks people out. It's more of a psychological advantage than anything else. Um, so all of these things are happening at the Battle of the Psalm and they happen for almost a year. Um, so the Psalm is really the only battle I'm going to tell you about where 
we don't even have a number for how many people are killed because this battle goes back and forth. You know, one side's winning, then the other side's winning for weeks at a time. They go through major holidays. They go through all the seasons. Um, but here is the number that I have for you about how many people were casualties. Again, casualty means you were hurt so bad you had to leave the battlefield. Some of those people, it's because they're dead. Some of those people, it's because they're wounded or they're incapacitated and they can no longer walk or fight or whatever. But here are the casualty numbers. The Allies lost 600,000 people at the Battle of the Somme. 600,000, a little over half a million people. Um, the Central Powers were about the same, 550 to 750,000. Um, these are all rough estimates, give or take a few thousand people. It's crazy to think that this battle was so bloody and so long that our rounding error, our math, you know, unsure error is a few thousand dead. Um, but that's how bad. When you add that together, you have somewhere between a million and a quarter and a million and a half dead people at the end of this, like, ten-month-long battle. It is a lot of people's nightmare scenario from the war. A lot of people, you know, that were interviewed after the war said this was definitely the worst place to be. Spoiler alert, I disagree, and we're going to get to a worse place later. Uh, but this was like the iconic World War I battle that everybody remembers, that everybody pictures. Um, I believe it's featured in the movie Wonder Woman when she runs out into the battlefield. Um, it's a very, very famous battle, and these battles are so bad and so brutal that just the word of where they're fought, the Somme, Verdun, Gallipoli, the three we're going to talk about, are iconic in a bad, bad way. It's kind of like 9-11 today. Like, you don't think back on it and think like, oh, wow, what an exciting time. You think that was a terrible place to be, and God help the people who were there. Um, so, we're going to take a quick break from that intensity and pick back up in just a moment, but stay with me. Be right back. All right, welcome back. We are picking up where we left off, and we're going to change gears a little bit. Um, I wanted to give you an example of one of the battles in World War I that's not on the Eastern Front, because I don't want you to think all this fighting was happening in the French, German, Belgian border regions, um, because there is a whole other group with millions of people fighting on the Eastern Front, which is along the far right side of Europe and all the way into Turkey, the Middle East, stuff like that, Egypt. Um, so I want to spend a few minutes here talking about the major battle that happened there, one of the major battles. There's several, obviously. But the most famous one that we know of that I would want you to know would be the Battle of Gallipoli uh, with G, Gallipoli. Now, this sounds like an Italian word, but it's actually a region of Turkey, which I hope you remember in the early 1900s in World War I time, is controlled by our old pals, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, still going sort of strong, not really. Um, in their 500th so years of being an empire. Um, 
the Ottoman Empire is pretty much now just stretched to Turkey. It's, it's much smaller than it was, but it's still a thing. Um, this is the Ottoman Empire's major battle against the Allies in Turkey. Um, it is both a land and a naval battle. This is a weird combination because it's along the coast a little bit. So we have our first appearance of warships also providing support, firing artillery. We have formations of troops moving on the land. And we have, of course, more trenches. So these trenches in Turkey would resemble in a lot of ways the trenches that we talked about in France at the Somme. Um, the few differences would be uh, required differences based on the geography. So obviously Turkey and France are not the exact same sort of land style. You're going to have a lot less wet, you know, thick mud in Turkey. You're going to have a lot more dusty, thin sand and stone and stuff like that. So the trenches are going to resemble the same design, but with different materials. Um, and it would be a lot dustier there as well. Um, and obviously a lot warmer and drier because it's Turkey. I mean, you're getting close to the Middle East there. Um, but Gallipoli is um, the most famous battle of the British Empire in a lot of ways and the most famous battle of the Ottomans. They're fighting each other. Um, a notable World War II hero, Winston Churchill, is defeated here. Um, we do have a clear-cut winner of Gallipoli, and that is uh, the Central Powers do claim victory here. The Ottomans are the winners of this battle. But... As they're driving out the British, one of the most famous men in British history, Winston Churchill, who would lead the British during World War II, is in charge of the Navy of Great Britain and thus uh, is on the hook for the loss here in a lot of ways. He takes a lot of flack for it and it really damages his reputation. So Gallipoli has the same sort of features of the... Battles on the Eastern Front, you've got the artillery, you've got rifle fire, you've got machine guns, landmines, no man's land, uh, you've got gas blowing through the wind, you've got barbed wire. But the interesting thing is, you have different faces fighting off here. Um, the Turks are very different people in appearance and culture than the British or the French or the Germans or any of the far Western European countries. Um, also, they are a Muslim culture. So you've got people fighting in robes and turbans, firing Ottoman Empire weaponry, fire, using Ottoman Empire language, praying there five times a day towards Mecca. Um, that's one of the interesting things about this war. Is it's one of the first times we have a war of truly multicultural significance. It's very diverse depending on the battle. There's also people from the African colonies fighting in this battle. There's also people from India fighting in this battle. Um, it's a very diverse group. It is not just similar looking guy on similar looking guy like we would picture sometimes in movies and TV shows. It's very, very diverse. Um, but Gallipoli is a pretty bad hit on the Allies. Um, uh, 
It is in 1916 and, or 1915 and 1916. Uh, I think it's like five to six months. Um, a lot of people end up dying, uh, about, I believe 40,000 allied troops are killed and about 80,000 central power troops are killed in this. The casualty numbers are a couple hundred thousand on each side. Um, now you may ask, why would the Ottomans be the victor here if they lost more soldiers? Well, they had more soldiers to begin with. So, you know, winning the battle does not necessarily mean you come out with the least people killed. It just means you, at the end of the conflict, are the ones taking over. So the Ottomans claim victory there. Um, and then we're going to move on next to the probably least fun place to be during this war. Uh, a place that most people very appropriately refer to as the meat grinder. Um, let that image sit in your head for a minute. Um, and that is the Battle of Verdun. So we will pick up on Verdun in just a moment. Hang tight. All right, we are back. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, and now we're going to talk about the craziest, most violent, most destructive battle probably in the history of the world. It's arguable. You know, obviously there are a lot of ancient battles that have numbers the same sort of size, but um, this one, I believe, is probably the worst to ever fight in, if I had to pick one. Um, so, let's talk about it. Um, this is a battle called the Battle of Verdun. Now, if you say that word in America... People don't really flinch. You might have a couple of history nerds like me say, Oh, Verdun, yeah, I know about... But you're not going to have a emotional reaction. If you say Verdun to people in France, to people in Europe, to people in England, Belgium, Russia, wherever, uh, you're going to get a emotional reaction, a shocked, horrified, disgusted, sad look on their faces. Verdun was an absolute disaster for all those involved. It was as close to a outright murder factory as we see in this entire war. Um, I try not to dwell too much on the graphic details because you guys see enough of that stuff, you know, in TV and movies now. I don't want to just, like, be all gory, but... This part of the episode is going to get kind of gory. So, um, Verdun is an area of France that is picked out by the Central Powers, by the Germans, as a deliberately planned attack site and a war site that they pick out of strategy. They attack this area because they know it is the connecting region to some of the most sacred parts of the French landmass. Uh, the French are going to react to this. They're going to come to fight to protect this part of their country. 
The Germans know that and they are expecting that. That's what they want to happen. The Germans do this on on purpose as bait to get the French to bite on this bait to come attack or to come defend their precious land. And uh, it works. They, they bait the French in. Um, the French come rushing to defend their homeland and their sacred towns and cities down the road. Um, and it turns into a bloodbath. Now, the thing the Germans did not expect was that the French would fight so hard and so... Uh, would be so obsessed with this battle that they would just pour resources and guns and ammo and manpower and uh, artillery cannons and, you know, they would reinforce the trenches again and again. They weren't going to lose this battle. The Germans did not expect the French to put so much at stake. In a lot of ways, this was the biggest battle for the Allies, their kind of last stand almost at this point in the war. And this is happening... Uh, towards the end of 1915, um, Verdun is situated on a river in central France. I believe it is close to Paris, but don't quote me on that. Um, Verdun becomes a killing field, but it also becomes a killing field for both sides. Um, the Germans end up losing way more people than they ever imagined. The French lose way more people than they ever imagined. In the end of the day, this is called by historians a victory for the Allies. But as you will see, the details of Verdun are so gruesome that calling anybody a winner from this conflict is kind of sad and kind of messed up. Because both sides, nobody wins when you have millions of people killed. So, what makes Verdun so dangerous is the geography. Uh, the Germans situate up on a elevated position, which if you know anything about military strategy, the person who has the high ground, just like in Star Wars, is always the superior fighter. And they pick this valley that they're going to kind of ambush the French at. And they post their positions, they dig their trenches, they set up their artillery cannons, all on a hillside, looking down at the positions that the French would have. Now, the problem is that the Germans don't really care enough and pay enough attention to is that Verdun has lots of hills and valleys, and the French eventually catch on to this and find their own upward position, and use that to their advantage. Um, it's really a battle over several very small, very grassy, in the original part, hills in this uh, pasture region of France. Uh, kind of like the wine-growing region of France. Now, Verdun goes on for months and months. But in the beginning, it is an absolute just massacre of French troops. The the German ambush, you know, position could not be better thought out. And the French are losing people by the hundreds of thousands in the first few weeks of this war. Hundreds of thousands. Um, people are coming back injured almost any time they come above the trenches. 
A lot of people are going missing, which in this war, as dark as it sounds, missing is pretty much you got blown up. Um, you don't go missing and then show up 20 years later in a war like this. When you're missing, it means they can't find any pieces of you. As dark as that sounds, it's pretty accurate. Um, people are going missing. People are uh, exhausted. People are dirty. People are getting disease, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, and then eventually when the French send enough soldiers, manpower, and resources to this, the Germans start suffering pretty much on an equal scale. They're being bombed out. They're being uh, machine gunned down. They're being ambushed. They're being attacked at night. They're being attacked with uh, grenades, with uh, rifle fire, all that kind of stuff. Their trenches are moving backwards and forwards on both sides. Um, you have aircraft for the first time that we've talked about being used mostly just to scope out the battlefield, but believe it or not, they even tried to use hot air balloons and blimps to drop bombs on each other. Uh, it is bad. Um, but probably the reason that makes Verdun worst of all is that it is happening in weather and conditions that make it so much worse. So, I don't know if you guys know that much about European climate, but a lot of Europe gets a lot of rain, especially in the fall and the spring. Uh, this rain comes down a lot, it comes down cold, and it makes everything a muddy mess. So, these battlefields are not clean, you know, easily visible, easily navigated on foot landscapes. They are muddy, wet, cold, chilly, you know, moldy at times, places. Um, so much so that soldiers on both sides are suffering really bad diseases from this weather. You get bouts of pneumonia, you get the cold, you get flu, you get uh, malaria from mosquitoes, you get fever, you get um, infection, and most famously of all, you get what's called trench foot. Trench foot is one of the grosser things that you can imagine. Um, trench foot is basically standing in cold, wet, muddy water in these trenches for so long, for so many days and weeks at a time, that you get an athlete's foot that starts eating away at the flesh of your feet and starts like deteriorating your actual human skin on your feet. It's like athlete's foot on steroids, and it can lead to people losing skin all the way down to the muscles and bones, which leads to terrible infection and terrible death. Trench foot is no joke, and it's happening all along the lines. Also, you're having food supplies being picked apart not only by the enemy, but these trenches with their you know, rations and supplies and human dwellings are naturally going to attract, of course, rats. Remember the Middle Ages. Rats spread disease. Rats are getting into their food supplies. Rats are getting into their water supplies. Rats are as common in these trenches as dogs are in your home today. And these rats are big. We're talking like chihuahua-sized rats. Um, also... You have people losing their minds at Verdun. For the first time, really, 
that's recorded in history, World War I has our first instances of what would later be called post-traumatic stress disorder. People are pushed to their mental limit by this war. They are what is called at the time in the early 1900s, shell-shocked. This is where, after being out on the battlefield for two or three weeks or a month or two, however long you're out there, you are so shaken up by the sounds, by the staying awake all night, by the terrible conditions, the cold, the wet, the, the bad food, the exhaustion, all combines to eventually make you go crazy. And it makes people lose the ability to speak. It has people that revert back to acting like children. It, it affects everyone differently. But this is how bad this battle is. Is During the battle itself, people are cracking up. People are going insane. Um, and they don't recover when they take them off the battlefield. This lasts the rest of their lives. A lot of people from World War I spend whatever time left in their lives they have in mental hospitals because they are haunted and traumatized by all the things that are happening around them. These shells are exploding louder than anything you can imagine. The sound alone is enough to bust your eardrums. These machine guns are going off and you never know if it's pointed at you or not. You hear a one single gunshot in the distance and you don't know if it's a sniper. You know, you see dirt come up and you don't know if you just stepped on a landmine or you just tripped. Um, your body is put to the limit and pushed to the edge of it is... It, it's bad, guys. I, you know, I'm not going to keep rambling about this, but I just hope you understand how terrible this is. Now, one of the worst parts of Verdun, I would say, is the fact that not only are you having this widespread death and destruction and disease and infection and all this you're not able to deal with it and to be clean from it on the battlefield. This is true for several World War I battles, but Verdun is the most famous because it's so dangerous that you can't even have five minutes at the end of the fighting to go pick up your dead horses, your dead soldiers, your injured, your wounded. You hear people throughout the night crying out, moaning, sobbing, groaning, in pain that are slowly dying because they took a shot to the stomach or something like that, and it takes a long time to die from something like that. Um, it, it is a truly haunting, nightmarish sort of scenario, and I would say at this point in time in, in history, this is probably the worst possible place to be in the whole world. Um, that's debatable, but in my opinion. Um, but... What I mean about the hygiene is these trenches have bathrooms, but the bathrooms are just ditches cut off to the side. So you got that going against you already. The smells, the the sights would be horrific. But these dead bodies are so numerous and so everywhere that they start becoming part of the landscape. You have first-hand accounts from these soldiers literally talking about like digging through craters to try to find cover from, from machine gun fire, and the side of the crater has like half-decomposed bodies lining the sides of people who fell and were covered by dirt and then covered by more dirt. You have people caught in barbed wire that are just left there to hang like bugs in a spider web and are 
dead and rotting. You have skulls and bones. You have pieces of people that are blown up by artillery laying all around you. It must have been like something out of the Saw movie. Um, But in the end, um, well over a million people uh, had died from Verdun. Um, And that's not even counting the people who were institutionalized or died after the battle from their injuries or from mental illness, committed suicide, things like that. Um, Well over a million. I would say the number is probably closer to two if you count all those people. Um, But this ends up being a a German victory, and it's probably the greatest Allied victory of the war. It's really sort of the turning point of the war, if you could really point one out. It's kind of hard to point one out. It's not like World War II, where it's very obvious where one side's getting the momentum. But Verdun, the Allies achieve victory. The French claim it even today as one of their greatest military victories, and they had to earn it. They rotated soldiers in and out for, I believe, two months at a time, and a lot of the soldiers tried to run away from the army or never came back for their shift again because they were so traumatized. Um, If you went to Verdun, you gained respect across the world from soldiers in other militaries. It was hell on earth. I cannot express that enough. I mean, it must have been terrible. Uh, So, I'm sure if you're like me, you're probably hearing all this and thinking, okay, enough already. So, where we're going to pick up next is putting an end to this war, what happens in the last stages of the war? Because two big things happen before the end of this war. One team taps out, and that would be the Russians in 1917, with help from the Germans, which we'll explain. One team taps in, that would be us, America. We come to fight like the last eight months or so of the war, USA, USA. Um... But we don't play a huge part. But those, both of those moments are two of the major moments that are tied into the end of the war. And we also need to talk about what happens to the side that finally loses this epic worldwide conflict. Um, what sort of punishment are you going to get for causing the world to be torn apart like this? Um, so stay tuned for our next episode. It will probably come out in a matter of days. But thank you for listening today, and I hope you stay safe and sound and happy. Bye-bye.